morning, my brothers and sisters and friends and families who are visiting from uh, out of town. Oh, maybe a lot of some of you, a lot of you maybe are in town from graduation festivities, maybe. If not, welcome you as well. Uh, we're glad that you are here. If you are uh, visiting with us today, it is just a delight that you are here. We are honored by your presence and we uh, welcome you to our little bunch here. Uh, like you said, my name is Zach, and it's just an honor to be uh, here with you this morning. If you would like to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, we're going to be there this morning. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 708. I think I was looking at the right version of the ones that we have. If that's wrong, I apologize, but hopefully you can find it. Have you ever been wrong about something? No? Okay, well, that makes one of us then. Have you ever known something was one way only to have been in reality so incredibly off target? Well, if so, then this morning is for you and for me. And if not, then probably uh, this morning is especially for you because you're either lying or you're not yet aware of that thing which you are wrong about. But Either way, if you are in either of these two categories, I assure you, you are in good company. So let's hear the word of God from Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46 this morning. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Lord, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks for the gift of another day, the gift of another Sunday for which we come to gather and celebrate who you are among us and who you are among our world. We thank you, God, that we do not gather on our own accord, but that it is you who has called us together once more. Thank you for the women and children and men in this space, which you have gifted this particular family with. We thank you for the visitors who are among us. God, in this moment, I pray that you will show us Jesus and him alone. I pray that you will hide me and my words behind the cross, because it is Jesus whom we want to see. So God, at this time, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock, my redeemer. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Gott mit uns. Do not worry, I'm not speaking in tongues here. These words were inscribed onto the belt buckles of soldiers during the Second World War. 
God with us, as it's translated. And in its original language, Emmanuel. The name also used to speak of the child celebrated each Christmas season. And no, it wasn't the soldiers of the supposed Christian nation America donning these words on these belt buckles. It was the inscription on the belt buckles of Nazi soldiers. Gott mit uns, God with us. It is a disturbing irony, is it not? A regime responsible for the genocide of the very people from whom this name Emmanuel came, all the while bearing that name upon their uniforms, the sign of such terror. All of it done in the name of the regime and, oh yeah, in the name of God too. If you can get God to back you and support you, well, then you can just about do anything, right? It is the ultimate trump card to play. Just as Bob Dylan, if you're familiar with him, some of you might be, hopefully, as he's saying, when God's on your side, you can pretty much justify just about anything. Got mit uns. I would like us this morning to take a bit of a journey through Mark's gospel. Hopefully, he will help us see this morning just how misguided humanity's notions of God can tend to be and how we can use God's name to promote and support our own agendas, whatever they may be. But Mark points us in another direction. So let's listen to what he has to say this morning. Let's listen to what he's trying to do. So earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus asked the disciples a very piercing question. You see, just after showing them that he had the power to miraculously feed crowds of thousands of people with just a few loaves and a few fish, the disciples get into a boat and they realize they forgot to bring lunch for the trip that they were going on. So what will they do now? And Jesus asked them, do you still not understand? This is a piercing question. Misunderstanding, failure to see, failure to hear, failure to recognize who Jesus is and what he's doing. So Mark brings us to a town called Bethsaida with all of this ringing in our ears. So if you would turn back a few chapters to chapter eight, verse 22. It says, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Well, this is a bit odd, is it not? Maybe Jesus is just a bit drained from having done that miracle of feeding all those thousands of people. Or maybe Jesus is just having an off day. Maybe he's a little bit tired. After all, he got tired just like everybody else. But on top of that, Jesus tells this guy who he just healed to go back 
through the vill- don't even go back through the village and don't say a word to anyone. Well, why this secrecy, Jesus? Maybe this is just one of those weird places in, uh, in one of the gospels where nobody really knows what Jesus is up to, so let's just kind of skip it and move on. But I don't think so. I think Mark tells us these stories about Jesus in a very particular way. I think he is trying to, just like the disciples, get us to see something. Well, then why the double healing? What's that all about? Why this secrecy? Why two touches from Jesus instead of one that works the first time? Do you see anything? I see people, they look like trees walking around. There's partial vision, but not complete sight. There's a vague perception of something in front of him, but a muddied clarity. Well, Mark moves us into Caesarea Philippi, another town, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? You, Peter answered, are the Messiah. This is the moment that Israel had been waiting for, the coming of Messiah. Messiah in Hebrew simply means anointed one, and then the Greek Uh, equivalent is the word Christos, where we get the word Christ. It's typically a reference to the anointing of Israel's kings. And throughout later Jewish prophetic literature and writings, there grew an expectation of a coming anointed one, another Messiah, who would come through the line of King David and restore Israel and do God's next big thing in the world. So there were high hopes fraught with great expectations here. Peter's declaration is the climax of Mark's gospel. You see, the Old Testament speaks of the gut-wrenching experience of Israel's exile into the empire of Babylon, which is a vast empire in what is now modern-day Iran, many think, which began, which became one of Israel's archetypal imperial enemies throughout Old Testament um, writings. Yet even in exile, God faithfully brought Israel back to their land. However, in Jesus' day, it still seemed that somehow Israel was still experiencing exile, like they hadn't quite fully recovered from it. See, they were back in their land They had been back in their land for hundreds of years by the time of Jesus, but they continued to be dominated by outside military and economic and um, governmental forces and powers, and they were now forced to pay taxes and live under the oppressive rule of Rome. Things were tense. The social situation was already explosive. Life in first century Palestine seemed to be coming to a boiling point. Murmurs of Messiah were circulating and growing in force. The whisper of revolution seemed to be in the air. And Peter says, you are the Messiah. This is a loaded statement. And Jesus says, do not say a word. You see, Peter gave the right answer. 
But his response to what Jesus says next clearly shows that he, along with the other disciples, still did not understand what that really meant. So continuing to read in Mark 8, verse 31, it says, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, what a scene. Peter rebuking Jesus. It's, a laugh, it's laughable for us as Mark's readers. But here we are, Peter rebuking Jesus. Perhaps Peter thinks to himself, I'll set, I'll set Jesus straight. He must have forgotten his job description. All this suffering and death talk for a Messiah, it just does not line up. It's all nonsense. But you see, Peter wasn't the first one who rebukes in this passage. Just previously in verse 30, Jesus literally rebukes his disciples into not saying anything because they too do not get it. They have some kind of picture of who they think the Messiah is and, and who Jesus is, but they do not really get it. They still do not see. They still do not really understand. Can you hear the echo? I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Just like the blind man, the disciples could faintly see, but they couldn't see clearly. Just like the blind man, they could not fully grasp what they were seeing and what they were hearing. Just like the blind men, they too needed a second touch. So Jesus rebukes again, this time right to Peter's face. Get behind me, Satan. You only have in mind human concerns, but not the concerns of God. The disciples and frankly, just about everybody else in the crowds who was following Jesus had been wrong about him. It seems that they too had some kind of complex similar to the Nazis' got mit uns fallacy, presuming Jesus would be exactly who they thought and who they wanted him to be. But Jesus minces no words here. What the disciples and the crowds thought of Messiah and who Jesus actually was as Messiah were two very different things. They expected a triumphant Messiah, a politically militant champion. They expected a powerful ruler coming in strength and vengeance against Israel's foes. They knew the benefits that they would also enjoy in following this Messiah, power, privilege, prestige, positions of authority. Following the Messiah meant a direct route right to the top. They were tired of being ruled by a foreign power. They were ready for change, ready for a revolution, and they were happy to be those closest to the Messiah about to bring it about. Their own agendas were well on their way to completion. Jesus is leading us and with God on our side, things can start being the way we want them to be. So perhaps they thought. But then Jesus speaks again in verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up your cross? The Roman tool for torture and utterly humiliating shame? 
the very thing that even Romans themselves were taught to fear of even speaking of because of how horrifying it was. How in the world does a cross fit into Jesus's mission? He is not speaking like a Messiah at all. Messiahs do not die, and they certainly do not die on a cross at the hands of pagans. But again, in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, Jesus predicts his death now as they pass through Galilee. But I wonder, where are they going? What is Mark trying to get us to see? What, what journey are they taking here? Again, Jesus' disciples start arguing about who is the greatest in their midst, jockeying for position. That was one of my mom's favorite lines when we were being little hellions in the grocery store about being everywhere. She says, stop jockeying for position. You know, I wonder if Jesus was feeling some of that frustration himself. Who would be Jesus' right-hand man? Who would have the power? Who would be the most who would be the strongest and most valuable and valiant over all the others among them. But Jesus strangely says in verse 35, the one who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Seriously, Jesus? First, you won't let us spill the beans about you being the Messiah. Then all this talk about your rejection and murder by the religious leaders. Then all this nonsense about following you by taking up our cross. And now this about the greatest being the very least and servant. What is going on, Jesus? Do you even know what you're doing or what you're talking about? Do you even know what a Messiah does? Notice how Mark is following the journey Jesus is taking. He started in Bethsaida. We moved through Caesarea Philippi. Now we come, start coming south through Galilee. And now in chapter 10, verse 32, the text says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Astonishment, fear, bewilderment, thoughts whizzing back and forth trying to make sense of what Jesus is doing he is at least traveling in the right direction, though. He's going to Jerusalem. Surely that's where Jesus will do his next big thing, right? Will he now gain victory over the Romans and, and push them out, drive them out? Will he now deliver Israel and restore the kingdom? Will he now come in his power and glory? Yes, but just not as they were expecting. Jesus again speaks of what awaits him in verse 33. We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Well, it seems James and John decided to ignore all this nonsensical talk of Jesus, of suffering and death, because their next question shows they hadn't really been listening. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. Well, I guess they had decided among them who was the greatest. Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been 
on the receiving end of this statement from Jesus. We expect Jesus to be one thing for us, to do something for us, to do things our way. We ask it, even demand it of him. Jesus, we may think, is there to give us what we want, when we want it, as we see fit on our own terms. After all, wasn't Jesus the one who said all that stuff about how much God desires to give good gifts to his children? Doesn't God just want me to be happy? We will follow you, Jesus, if you give us what we want. We will follow you, Jesus, but only as long as we get something out of it. We will follow you, Jesus, but only if it means assured security. We will follow you, Jesus, but only if you let us be who we want to be on our own terms. We will follow you, Jesus, but only if you don't demand too much from us. And now once more, I'd like for us to return to the passage we read at the beginning. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Pay attention to what Mark may be doing here. Verse 46, chapter 10. Then they came to Jericho, and Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Did you hear that? When blind Bartimaeus receives his sight, he doesn't just head home going about his own business. No, he receives his sight and he follows Jesus on the road. Well, what road is that? It's the road to Jerusalem, the city of the kings. It's the road of the king. It's the road of Messiah. Maybe this blind man Bartimaeus actually understands far more about what discipleship means than we may expect of just an old beggar in the Bible. Unlike the rich man who couldn't bear parting with his riches and wealth, Bartimaeus casts aside his cloak, his only possession as a poor man, a possession that is specifically protected by God in the Jewish law in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus rebuked Peter for pushing his own agenda fraught with misunderstanding. Yet Bartimaeus defies the rebuke of the crowds seeking to receive his sight from Jesus. And I wondered, how often do we, church, respond to Jesus the way Bartimaeus does? How often do we simply tell Jesus, I don't just want to see, I want to see you, Jesus, for who you really are. Bartimaeus doesn't just get something from Jesus and return to live as business as usual. 
Jesus changes him. He follows Jesus on the road to Jerusalem where Jesus will indeed get a crown, a crown of thorns, where he will, where he will be indeed lifted high, lifted high on a cross. This is the road Jesus calls us to follow him down as well. If you want to put that picture up on the slide for me, Nick, please. Just as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor in the subversive anti-Nazi confessing church in Germany during Hitler's regime said, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. Following Jesus is a road of self-denial. It is a road of suffering. It is a road of the unbearable love of God intersecting with a world of unbearable hate and injustice. It is one that we are so often so terrible at walking down with Jesus, which is precisely why it is the road of the gospel. Have you ever felt like we've missed it? Like you don't fully understand? Have you ever felt yourself living with a worn out, broken down, half-baked faith? Like the disciples and the blind man from Bethsaida, do, do we have eyes but fail to see? Do we need a second touch from Jesus? Or have you been like blind Bartimaeus? who where when Christ has called you and restored your sight, you've walked down that path with him faithfully, the path of self-denial for the sake of others. Well, friends, either way, Mark's gospel is littered with good news. Hope is everywhere at every turn. You see, even though his own disciples never really quite got it, Jesus never gave up on his disciples. And he does not give up on me or you either. Sometimes we, like Peter, need a rebuke from Jesus. But always Jesus invites us back in to see him anew and to learn what it means to follow him again. Even after getting it so wrong, Jesus still walks with his disciples, leading them on, extending grace. And when they finally got it, God changed the world through them. And it's not just that the disciples finally figured it out on their own. It's not just that they put the pieces together and finally saw it clearly on their own accord. Notice at the end of Mark's gospel in chapter 16, we don't see the male disciples going to the tomb, but we see the women walking to the tomb. We only see the women. So for all we know, the guys had lost their hope, perhaps. Their dreams crushed at the side of the dead body of their hopeful Messiah dangling on that cross. But this isn't Mark's last word, is it? In Mark chapter 16, verse 6, there's an angel sitting there at the empty tomb. And he says, don't be alarmed, he says to the women, you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He ain't here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, the rebuked one. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. 
just as he told you. Despite the trembling of the women and the hopeless hiding of the disciples, Jesus opens their eyes at the resurrection. And Jesus gave them the second touch. And Jesus can give it to you and me as well. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, the crucified Messiah, the one who suffered for me and you and your neighbor and your enemy. And he is risen from the dead so that we and the whole world might learn how to really live. So how will we respond this morning? Perhaps we've been trying to create Jesus into our own image rather than letting him be all who he really is. Perhaps we, like the disciples, have been led to believe that he really wasn't who we thought and feel like we are left without hope. Oh, friends, there is hope. Hope because Christ is the one who restores sight to the blind. Jesus is Lord and he refuses to fit into our little boxes that we try to impose upon him. Thanks be to God. Jesus is Lord and he has also come to show us the deep unflashiness of what it means to give his life for the sake of others, for you and me and our friends and our neighbors and our enemies, which is true power and true glory. So at this time, we are approaching Christ's table as we do every week. You can see communion is available around the room. And we invite you to participate, to actively remember not just what Christ has done in the past for us on the cross in the world, but who Christ is among us now and who Christ is among the world, healing Jesus himself is our host here, and he is present among us. And he invites us to come to this table and to see him, to be nourished by him and be changed by him again and again with each time that we partake of communion into a people who live like Christ rather than by the systems and ways of the world. So we encourage us as we share after all, pray, get together, pray together. Ask God to expose and speak to the deep places inside us where misunderstanding lingers on. Spend time with Jesus, not just here, but as we leave and venture forth. Ask him to give us a second touch so that we may be seen, so that he may be seen by us anew. God is with us. Christ is with us, church. And he is ready to show us who he really is. So I ask, what do you want Christ to do for you? Let's pray. God, I pray that you will do something with these broken words. Thank you for the gospel and your word from which we have been in this morning. I pray for my sisters and brothers and friends in, in our midst here that you may speak to us, O oh God, that we may see Jesus anew. Forgive us 
Lord, when we try to make Jesus into our own image rather than letting him be most perfectly who he is, the one who calls us to come and die so that we can know true life. Thank you for the hope that the church has to bear witness to the life of Christ, that we have hope in a broken world, oh God. And we thank you for the table. Thank you for communion, which we receive as gifts of you for us. And God, as we partake of this, will you open our eyes afresh, anew? If we need things to, to be exposed in us, God, we invite you to do that now. So thank you for the word. Thank you for this church. And uh, thank you for your presence among us. We love you, oh God. Thank you for being our redeemer and the one who restores our blindness into sight. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.